0: Hello and welcome to Harris in Conversation, our Harris Federation teaching and learning podcast brought to you remotely from London. Our series aims to bring important and relevant teaching and learning conversations to you, whether you're a frontline teacher, a school leader, an educational enthusiast, or you just clicked on this by mistake. My name is Ollie Blagden. Today I'm joined by another guest who needs no introduction, but we'll do it anyway, David Didow. David is an English teacher, education consultant and author. He's written a range of successful books for teachers, including The Perfect English Lesson, The Secret of Literacy, What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong, What Every Teacher Needs to Know About Psychology, Making Kids Cleverer and Intelligent Accountability. His blog, learningspy.co.uk, is widely recognised as one of the most influential education blogs In the UK. Today we're here to discuss David's new book, Making Meaning in English. About this book, Alex Quigley writes, Daidao explores the past of English teaching, the problematic present, whilst offering an exploration of a better future. He digs into the rich traditions of the discipline whilst offering teachers practical insights so that they can notice the artful craft of English and turn it into compelling action described by Mary Myatt as delightful and truly impressive, by Dr. Carl Hendrick as a remarkable achievement, and by Lawrence Foley as compulsory reading in English departments and ITE courses up and down the land, making meaning in English has clearly already had a marked impact on educational critics across the country. So, let's jump in and find out more. Hello, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Oliver.
1: I'm um, very impressed you got the pronunciation of my surname right. Well done. I did my research.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is a great one. And you must get this all the time, but it did make yeah. me think of uh, of the excellent singer Dido. That has happened before. Yeah, that has happened. But um, yeah, not that one. So let's start at the beginning then. You have a wealth of experience, research, publications under your belt why did you write this book and what did you set out to achieve
1: well i suppose it's the culmination of years of work with uh, schools with uh, multi academy trusts thinking about the english curriculum so i've been i've been contracted over the years to to work on the english curriculum in a number of different settings and i've had lots of debates with teachers and lots of experience of me having highfalutin ideas which then backfire in classrooms and all of the all, and I just felt like all of this thinking and reading that I have been doing over the past five or six years I, I was just really keen to pull it all together and put it in one place and when I started to do that obviously well I say obviously I, I just felt there were several rabbit holes which I was drawn inexorably to and uh, and so this idea that English is a is is about students ability to make meaning the the, the language and the literature that we, that we put in front of them comes alive when they are able to relate it to their lives and question and critique it and and then apply uh, the principles that we've um, been at pains to teach them so that's that's mainly the thinking and the purpose behind it
0: and you're clearly no stranger to writing books what's no. your process like um
1: well, it's so you you mentioned. Um, I'm, I'm I'm usually a bit embarrassed to mention my first book, uh, the Perfect English Offsted Lesson, which is very much a product of its time, and and that I, I, I basically I wrote that in about two weeks over one Christmas holiday uh, back in 2011, and I think that that other of my books, so making Making Kids Cleverer took took a couple of years to write and was was very very much. Uh, you know that I had I had to read an awful lot of academic papers and try and resolve tensions in the debates around intelligence, which which are really you know where there's lots of really deep fissures in the academic community. This one, I guess, I started a few years ago. I I wrote a blog post called "An Epist An Epistemology of English," where I tried to make some suggestions about what knowledge in English might look like, and so that now is chapter three of the finished book and I I suppose it grew outwards from there and I just kept finding new things that I wanted to include so one of the things like it begins by providing us a history of English teaching in England and well certainly for me a lot of that was stuff I I didn't know about and and I was unearthing through reading various things which which I some of which I knew of their existence but had never looked at before things like you know reading through the original underpinning stuff behind the national curriculum written by Brian Cox and his team. And then back, back to documents from the 1920s, like the Newbolt Report on English teaching 100 years ago, which was absolutely fascinating. And I just felt that as a profession, and, and particularly as a profession of English teachers, if we don't know what, where we've come from, if we don't know what the thinking and the decision making and the debates have if you don't know what they've been over time, then we are we are more likely to end up reinventing wheels that perhaps don't need reinventing, and sometimes I think we end up reinventing square wheels instead of round ones, and I think we can learn an awful lot by looking at the processes that have existed over the over the last century or so. And, uh, and I found that very revealing. So it, it kept going outwards into things like that. And the, but I was very keen to, to bring it back to this work that I've, that I it, which is a synthesis of work that I've done with, a, you know, as I said, with a number of different settings on what my vision of what an English curriculum at Key Stage 3 might look like. And, and so that was the always the, the natural end point that I wanted to work towards.
0: It's so interesting that you mention that history of English. You do span from the Middle Ages right up to recent years, including the rise of the national curriculum, the Gove reforms, and you do discuss how the intentions and purposes of English have kind of changed over time. There's almost a almost a sort of identity crisis around English really, isn't there, if you look at its history. You move from this history into looking next at the common problems or challenges with English including around reading, writing, restrictive practices, how we teach historical context and you also visit that contentious English debate on whether the subject is knowledge or skills based Mm. and you argue that we can't teach skill, we can only teach knowledge. Can you unpick this for us a little?
1: Yeah I think the, the heart of this is that, that as English teachers, we have acquired skill. We are, we are skilled practitioners and, and we are able, you know, we, can, we have the skill of writing essays and, and being able to approach text analytically and all sorts of other things. And, and so it seems to us as people who possess these skills that it must be possible to teach them to, to someone that doesn't possess them that makes, superficially, that makes tremendous sense. Of course you would expect that to be the case but I think a lot of the mistakes that certainly I have made as an English teacher have been an attempt to do just that. So looking at something like a a skill like analysis and saying to students, okay I want you to analyse this text and here here are some formulas for doing that. Now you've learnt the skill of analysis And then giving them another text and saying, use that skill that you've learned, use that, use those formulas that I've given you. And because they don't know anything about the new text, they're unable to do it. I think that things like inference and analysis and evaluation, these are products of of knowledge. They're expressions of what we know rather than skills that can be discreetly taught in isolation and which transfer between the different areas of study in a subject like English. Even something like reading, that you, you know, that obviously that's a skill. You can just read, or you can't read. If again, if you don't know the specific vocabulary in a text, if you don't possess the the, the requisite background knowledge to make sense of what you're reading, then it becomes extremely difficult. Um, just to be difficult in the in the in the book, I, I use the example of of Joyce's *Finnegans Wake* and presents a sort of short extract from that, and just say, look, it doesn't matter how how skilled you are as an English teacher if you don't know much or anything about Finnegan's Wake then you're not going to be able to apply any of those skills that you think you have and that you as an English teacher trying to analyze Finnegan's Wake is not dissimilar perhaps from a student faced with Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde or or, or A Christmas Carol or A Midsummer Night's Dream and, and being on the outside and being presented with a text from which there appears no way in. And to give that, to give students ways in, they need to know lots and lots and lots of things. And so we we teach them those things, that knowledge, and then we give them opportunities to practice the application of that knowledge. And and the sort of the, the, the formula that I suggest is that skill is knowledge plus practice. And you know, knowledge in itself is insufficient, you can't simply know something, you have to practise again and again and again and applying it in different ways. And through that process, eventually
0: skill is acquired. I think you encapsulate that argument really well when you give the example of a full stop at one point as well. Right. Would you mind just talking us through that briefly?
1: Yeah, the thing with full stops is that you can say to a child, this is a full stop. And they come at the end of a sentence and uh, now you know what a full stop is. So when you write, make sure you put full stops in. And, and you know, and, and that's a caricature because obviously teachers, especially in primary school, go into a lot more depth than that. And then some children produce writing which has full stops in the correct place and some children don't. And I think it's what what, what happens for us as teachers is we think, OK, so, you know, I taught that really well. And I know I did because some of the kids have learned it and some of them haven't. And that's, pro- and that's on them. You know, they what can you do with some, you know, some kids just struggle to get stuff. And I think that what's what's difficult for us is that some children, because of their social advantages and they have a wide experience of reading and writing that other children don't possess. And so that when we teach them something, it's it's like they possess the equivalent of intellectual Velcro. And that information sticks really, really easily to all of the prior knowledge that they have. And they pick up things really quickly. And that's incredibly gratifying for us as teachers. And then the children that don't possess those ad- advantages, obviously, the the kind of minimal and incomplete descriptions that we've given are insufficient and so they don't pick up what we've told them to do because they don't know enough things that are necessary to know in order to activate the information about what a full stop is and how to use it and i think i i've I've certainly done this myself you know we i've looked at certain kids and gone oh you know i despair Uh, what what can i do with with students who are who seem to have so little ability in english Uh, and actually what i've learned over the years is uh i need to try and work out all of the things that i know that make the knowledge of the full stop possible to to use and apply because and you've and I, you know let me know if you've experienced you, this yourself oliver but you can set up exercises where you say to children okay so here's a passage of text and there are no full stops in it and i want you to put in the full stops where you think they are and most often Kids can do that even if even if then they produce some writing and they don't use full stops correctly. Or maybe a better example of this is the capital letters. I talk in the book about the capital letter problem that children possess the knowledge of what a capital letter is and where they should go, proper nouns, beginning of sentences, but then don't use them. And so there are, I draw a distinction between knowledge problems and habit problems and that they need to be treated differently. If you've got a, a habit problem, there's not really much benefit from saying to students, this is, you know, here's, here's the knowledge you need, because they already have it. They just haven't had enough practice or haven't had the correct practice at applying it. And that's that's what they need in order to get out of the habit of not applying what they know in a in, a, in too small a context, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. I found that part really interesting to read, that notion of practice being actually quite a harmful exercise when it's not done correctly.
1: No, you're right and Oliver. This is something that I, you know, I see in my, you know, working life, visiting schools, that looking at children's exercise books that they get, they get hours and hours and hours of practice at writing, but the writing that often producing is mediocre at best and what they're not doing is practicing great writing, who's that benefiting? If you're practicing doing substandard writing then you're getting better at substandard writing and I think I think that's something that we find it very difficult to acknowledge as a profession.
0: Two other common challenges you outline for yep. English are what you call cargo cult writing and the history lesson problem and I have to say that these two really spoke to me. What are these issues, and why can they be so unhelpful?
1: Okay, well, yeah, so cargo cult writing is is me sort of riffing off the idea of, from of Richard Feynman of talking he talks about the social sciences as being like cargo cults, in that they replicate the physical sciences, and they 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 purport to go through the same um, processes of inquiry and produce results which maybe aren't meaningful because, because they're replicating the form without actually having a real understanding of the substance. And, and I've, I found cargo cults in, in, in particularly in Polynesian cultures, a fascinating sort of example that when, when these cultures who'd been cut off from the rest of the world first encountered Western technology they obviously they looked at the superficialities of how it works and assumed that were they to copy how things looked then they get the same results and the example that that Feynman uses is that is copying airports so that that some of these Polynesian Melanesian cultures they saw like American marine bases being built on their islands and planes landing and they thought well if we build something that looks like that then we'll get cargo delivered to us as well and so they they actually went through the process of building these structures out of um, local materials. And obviously enough, uh, even though they'd they done a reasonably thorough job of trying to replicate the structures, obviously enough, these these cargo cults died out because no planes ever landed, because the, the people in question just, just have no conception of global geopolitics and everything else that they needed to know in order for cargo to arrive at an airport. And I think that that something similar but importantly different ha- happens with the kind of essay writing that that we often teach students to do. We teach them to use these structures like P or Peel or Peter or you know all of these other variants where we're, we're showing them how to make a point and how to collect evidence and how to analyze that evidence. And, and so we put all of this effort in our lessons into replicating something that approximates an academic essay. And students spend a lot of time practising that, typically, in, in, in many settings. And so they can, they, can, they can do that. They can replicate something that has the form of an academic essay. But when we actually read them, um, you know, you, you sometimes find examples of student writing where they say things like, Macbeth is ambitious. He says he has no spur to prick the sides of his intent but am- faulting ambition. And this shows that he's ambitious. And you're you know, you as a teacher you're thinking, okay, yeah, you've you've got the structure, but my goodness, you know, there's something serious missing here. And what you know, children are producing these things that are essentially cargo cult essays. They're basically made of twigs and the planes aren't landing. But because the planes in this in this analogy and are not real, the planes landing is kids getting marks and, and so It's like the the argument I was making about the teaching of full stops earlier, that some kids, kids from more socially advantaged backgrounds, are more likely to be able to apply that kind of teaching and bring in a wider knowledge of the world, which means that the essays that they end up writing are closer approximations to academic essays, whereas the the children from more deprived backgrounds only have what we give them in school and and are really cut adrift producing, you know, these ersatz essays and uh, and 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 doing really really badly as a result
0: and i suppose there are actually some similarities in terms of uh, the misconceptions of how we use knowledge when we look at the history lesson problems yeah. as well
1: yeah i mean so that when we're teaching context when we when we're giving the historical social literary context to the text that we teach i think that it's one of those bits of the English teacher jobs when we write. Right then, here's um, here's some stuff that you know. Here are some facts. Finally, here are some facts that I can give my students, and they'll know what they are. And uh, and I can be like other subject teachers that you know who seem to have this easier job of teaching things which are more substantial and substantive. And um, and I know I've fallen into this trap myself, and I, t- I talk about in the in the book of, in in preparation for. For getting ch- children to to read and write about Julius Caesar, spending you know a couple of weeks going into the history of the Roman Republic and Marius and Sulla and all of this stuff, and me thinking, oh, I'm giving them a, a really really thorough grounding, and uh, and because they don't know anything about the text, when a lot I think a lot of that foregrounded contextual teaching is is is, is probably not right to say pearls before swine, but it is it is seed scattered on on barren soil because the children don't have enough understanding to sort of make sense and apply it and by the time we get to the text itself, um, the, the, the the context and the text seem very very separate. And so when we look at students who make sweeping statements like um, you know women in Shakespeare's time all had to you know do the cooking and the cleaning. And uh, and so Lady Macbeth is very un- unusual because she didn't. That's what they know because we've given them these bits of these nuggets of contextual information in these context lessons that they they have these very, almost separate schema in their minds of here's some factual information and here's the text itself and never the twain shall meet. And so tra- trying to, f- to deliver that key essential information at the point where it's, activated by the text itself is something that has taken me a long long time to to get good at and I think obviously some teachers do a much better job of that than I used to do Um, but I think that we are encouraged by some of the the recent trends and movements in English so things like the knowledge organiser which I don't think is a bad thing per se but I think it's often used unthinkingly to collect together lots and lots of factual information which we can give to students and go memorise that, learn that, and because they they don't have the experience or the understanding of the text from which this information is meant to surround, they are almost by definition bound to be learning decontextualized knowledge um, which they they struggle then to apply to the text itself. So I guess the best way of avoiding the history lesson problem is not to teach history lessons, to teach English lessons, which are rooted in in literature and language, and then to supplement that where necessary and where, where purposeful with the context that that brings it to, further to life.
0: Moving now into the main part of the book, you right. present the reader with six overlapping disciplinary areas that are essentials, I suppose, for helping us to make meaning in English. You devote a chapter to each of these and break them down in such an informative and practical way. What are these six categories and how did you arrive at them? So the six categories, and they were, so metaphor,
1: argument, story and pattern were the the first four, Uh, and then grammar and context are ones which I subsequently added uh, to 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 flesh those out and those first four came from um, well sort of years of thinking about this but it, they really crystallized in a conversation that i had with um, a trainee at the time i was i was working on a pgce course and i'd been uh, and i used to travel down to to london to deliver a day of, English, of teaching to these PGC students once every couple of months on a Saturday. And one of my, one of my students, Molly Jans, we went for a coffee afterwards and we were talking we were having this discussion about what, what are the key sort of areas of knowledge in English. And we came up on the, on the back of a napkin with those first four metaphor story argument and pattern. And, uh, and they are you know they're, they're, I, I make no great claim for them being correct. It's just that the more I've tested them, the more I've thought about, okay, what are the, what are the bits that we teach in English? Uh, it, it, it seems to me that they fit relatively well within one of those overarching areas. And, and so originally the idea of grammar w- w- was something that I thought of as you know a, a part of pattern, but it seems big enough to warrant um, going into enough detail in a separate chapter. And then context. Again, I'm I'm sort of less clear that context is something separate and different. But for its treatment in the book, it seemed reasonable to treat it differently, um, which is what I did. So, so the idea of metaphor is is essentially the idea that I think you know. Obviously, all English teachers know what metaphors are, and we do. There's lots of teaching in schools about you know, here's a metaphor, there's a metaphor, where's a metaphor but it's more thinking about metaphor as a as a way of understanding language, that language is essentially metaphorical, and that it's almost impossible to say anything or write anything without using abstractions. and those abstractions make sense to us by putting them in concrete terms. And so that looking at etymology, looking at looking at the formation of words, you can see that many, many words, especially, abstract words have their roots in in metaphors by looking at at language and the way that metaphor can be systematised in language and how that's different and vibrant in literature. One of the things that I found really fascinating for me in that chapter is I kind of framed a debate between on the one hand the idea of systematised metaphor as developed by uh, George Lakoff and on the other hand, um, one of my intellectual heroes, Michael Oakeshott, who in his essay, uh, The Voice of Poetry and the Conversation of Mankind, sort of really rejects the idea that, that systematic metaphors work in the same way in, in poetry, in literature, and that, that he, he says that almost those, those symbolic systematised meanings have to be rejected for literary metaphors to come to life. And so, by writing that chapter, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily the substance of what English teachers should be doing in lessons with, you know, students in year seven or anything like that. It's it's more that having that debate, having that wider understanding of metaphor, I think, helps us as teachers to think about the the instruction that we're giving teachers and to think uh, students and to think about the the lessons that we're putting together and to move beyond metaphor spotting to metaphor appreciation and um and that's very much what that chapter's about and then the the second is story which is all of the the concepts which underpin the idea of narrative and with you know characterization setting plots narratology theme all of these different things and sort of showing how they, uh, how the concepts that that lie within and and between those different things are utilised to turn life into fiction and to really think about, you know, that on a naive level stories operate around us all of the time, we frame our own lives in stories, but the stories that are studied in English are artful and consciously crafted and created using a set of techniques which has been which has been refined and honed over millennia. That was something I, again, I found hugely interesting. So pretty much anything that fits into the construction of a story fits into that chapter. And then there also needed to be something that looked at the the fact that, that a lot of writing, a lot of texts that we that we produce and study within the discipline, are not about stories. They're about they're about arguments. They're about Developing points of views and 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 persuading an audience of that point of view That was the the basis for the the idea of having argument as a as a separate chapter and that looks at particularly looks at the rhetoric as a set of things and also Dialectic debate and conversation as another set of things and the relationship between those and how an understanding of those things can help us to, to both read, particularly read nonfiction, and to, and to create it in ways which are more meaningful. And then pattern is, I, it was a, is a, is a deliberate attempt not to talk about structure directly. I, I, I wanted to say, you know, that the pattern contains structure but is slightly more than it and that what's often discussed in the name of structure is perhaps too small to be, genuinely as useful as it could be so pattern is is all about the similarities and differences that help us appreciate and and recognize art that that when we're reading something and we and we feel satisfied with a turn of phrase it's because of a pattern in the language in the in the construction the way we feel them is by is by consonance and dissonance um, is is itch and scratch. This idea that we we see differences because of similarities, and so when there are disruptions, some disruptions are jarring and some are some are satisfying, and so they we can produce those through sound patterns and through syntactical patterns, uh, which is where grammar comes in, uh and morphological patterns, and, and as well as larger patterns within within novels and how the writing of particularly of extended fiction is about call and response it's about putting something out there and then doing something with it presenting the reader with an itch and then and then giving them the opportunity to scratch that itch and so that's more than just you know rhyme schemes or beginnings and ends or you know paragraphs it's it's a way of thinking about literature and language so those are my those are uh, does that I've, I've I've banged on a lot there oliver so Not at all.
0: It's so interesting and there's so much in there. You mentioned the pattern chapter, that I I found that particularly interesting. Really enjoyed your exploration of sound as well the Mm. the research around that. I think you referenced at one point Margaret Magnus's research, you're looking at phonetic differences between (gasps) phrases. I think you mentioned at one point the differences between hush, be quiet and shut up and their varying impacts. That was brilliant.
1: One of the kind of bits of received wisdom we get, especially anyone who's done a language degree, um, is, is you know that on the one hand, you've got Ferdinand de Saussure who's who says that you know the meanings of work, you know, sign and signifier is arbitrary and there's there's no inherent meaning in the sounds themselves. And Magnus, via well, she she references Socrates and says, you know, Socrates is onto the right idea. He could see that actually sounds do contain meaning. And her study has been to show that the, the, the meanings of the sounds themselves are far deeper and more powerful than semantic dictionary definitions. And that, for me, that was a, just a glorious debate, which I've skated the surface of. Um, but it's something I knew nothing about before embarking on writing the book. And I just wanted to share it, basically.
0: To close the book, then, you provide the reader with a model curriculum for Key Stage 3 and compelling advice on how we can connect the curriculum, as you put it. Along the way, you outline how we can assess the quality of an English curriculum. And you argue that broadly, we should be asking ourselves two questions. One, is the curriculum powerful? And two, is it shared? How might these questions be useful for a leader who's perhaps reviewing their current curriculum.
1: One of the things that I found fascinating was was reading Arthur Appleby's book on uh, the curriculum as conversation. and he uses this idea, you know that if, if a conversation between two individuals should conform to certain expectations and rules, then if we're perceiving the curriculum as a conversation between our students and the world out there, then maybe it would be more effective if it too conforms to some of those conventions that which make conversation successful. And so that the idea of powerful knowledge and shared knowledge is, uh, I think, part of that process. And because our subject is so vast, it's almost limitless what you could choose to include in an English curriculum, especially if you're if as in key stage three you're not confined by examination specifications uh then you need to be able i think to hold up one choice against another choice and say what are the costs and and benefits relative to each other so i could teach this and it would be great and the kids might really enjoy it but i could teach that and they might really enjoy that as well but is enjoyment the only metric we have for trying to judge what might be most most useful to teach? And so the idea of, of powerful knowledge is about these concepts, metaphor, argument, story and, uh, and pattern and the concepts contained within those big areas. And that if we're putting powerful concepts at the heart of an English curriculum and we're, uh, we're, we're having those concepts lead the, the choices of, for instance, texts, that we're putting in front of children to read then that is going to be potentially much much more useful to them than having you know, arbitrarily choosing texts that we think they might like or enjoy or because they prepare them for the GCSE or, or whatever it is that goes into that and then the idea of shared knowledge is that I'm very much in favour of education broadly, not just English, allowing children to have a seat at the table and to to be able to participate in ongoing debates that we as a society now and in the past and in other societies across the globe have considered important at different times and places. and And that if we're not consciously and deliberately thinking about their entitlement to take part in those conversations, then that might lead us to make decisions which are suboptimal. Whereas if we're, if we're looking at our choices, our text choices in particular and thinking, how does this choice enable students to take part in a, in a debate that otherwise they'd be excluded from, I think is a, is a useful way for weighing up the different choices we could possibly make.
0: I think the discussions and debates and critiquing in that chapter are incredibly powerful and useful for all teachers and heads of department when they're looking at how that curriculum should be constructed so finally a slight change of tact here in the spirit of celebrating those who have inspired us in education David Didow who was your favorite teacher at school and why
1: ah oh, Mr Birch six and a half feet tall He had a massive spade beard he used to wear these enormous Dr Martin boots size 13 boots he was a terrifying figure to younger students and, and I was I think it's fair to say that I was a reasonably disaffected student when I was at school and for whatever reason he saw something in me which he decided to nurture and he took the time to encourage me to write as well as read and and took seriously my you know teenage nonsense he just made me fall in love with the subject in a way that i've never fallen out of love with it's a great sadness that he he's no longer with us he he um a few years after i i left school he he you know i didn't know this at the time but he he suffered he was he had um bipolar uh, disorder and he took his own life um which you know it's an enormous sadness to me i never took the opportunity or had the opportunity to go and tell him just how much he meant to me in not just at school but since but yeah Mr Birch and there's there's another English teacher I'm sorry to sneak in but there's another English teacher that I put in my dedication to the book so partly dedicated to Mr Birch but also to a teacher called Derek Adams who it was the is the most inspirational English teacher I've worked with. Again, he he's also no longer with us. I worked at a school where he taught at. He'd been at, he'd been there for thirty odd years, and you know man and boy, and he taught everyone's mum, and you know he was a legend. And one of the things which I I think more than anything else was the making of me as an English teacher is my classroom adjoined his. I would often, if I was didn't have a lesson, I would just have the door open and just listen to him teaching his class. You know, just yeah. just ma- making notes on the on how he was doing it. And he he just had this incredible capacity. He had um he would just quote extensively from from works of literature apropos of nothing. You know, he would just have this huge stock of of literature, and and he would he very much taught from the front, and he and the students, the children that he taught, would just. Blown away by you know, his love of English and his erudition and his insistence that everybody could achieve uh, really, really highly, and he was he was relentless in making them step up and do things that they didn't think they were capable of doing. And this was in a very deprived part of Western Supermare, I don't know if you know it, um, but it's uh, it's not somewhere that's that's known for it, you know, for being leafy and lovely. And he, he, he just took these kids by the scruff of the neck and made them, as far as he was able, made them made them excel. And uh, I've always tried to do my tiny, tiny best to live up to uh, his reputation. So, yeah, those two.
0: Gosh, you know, I, it's funny. I always ask this question to people who come on. And I think that's probably the most moving answer I've had yet. It's a Thank good good God. message there, isn't there? And um, certainly letting those people know yes. who've made an impact on us. Absolutely. Yeah. So Making Meaning in English, Exploring the Role of Knowledge in the English Curriculum by David Didow and published by Routledge is available now to buy from all good booksellers and online. It's packed full of knowledge, raises important disciplinary challenges and provides thoughtful solutions and shares precise subject knowledge that every teacher will find invaluable in the classroom, no matter their experience. I'd highly recommend adding this book to your teaching and learning bookshelf. David, where can we find you online?
1: Uh, I, um, I've i got a website, which is learningspy.co.uk and I'm on Twitter at David Dido.
0: It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Ah, great pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: This was Harris in Conversation. My name is Ollie Blagden. You can find the Harris English Consultants on Twitter at HFedEnglish and me at Oliver Blagdon. If you haven't already, check out our other teaching and learning interviews at podbean.com forward slash Harris Conversation and our latest pupil podcast resources at anchor.fm forward slash learning with Harris. You'll find both of them on Spotify. Join us soon for our next interview, and until then, take care.